You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. All right. Good evening, friends. How are you tonight? Welcome to Lenses. We are so glad you are here. Um, we are continuing. This is the second uh, conversation about stories. I missed last week with Dr. Matt Curlin, but I heard it went very well. Can someone nod and say, yes, it did go well? Any voices of dissent? Okay. He's not here tonight, so you can say it. He'll never know. Um, anyway, I, uh, we're excited to hear that. Last week was about literature, and tonight is about film and movies. I was going to do my introduction later, but now's a good time. Ethan Milner works on staff, and he's our, uh, been the video director since 2012. Um, it was probably about 2003 or four that I was a disciple now leader here at Shades Mountain Baptist Church, and Ethan was in my group, and he's the only one I talk to any longer, but... Uh, all right, there, there's no punchline there, but otherwise, I just felt you needed to know that. Um, he was great then, and he's steadily declined since. So, no, I'm kidding. Ethan, we're really excited to he- hear you, and thank you for all your hard work in putting this talk together. Um, at the conclusion, uh, Ethan's going to present, and then we're going to have some time for Q&A, and then we're going to break off in small groups and answer some questions. The questions for tonight are questions number 3, 6, 15, and 19. If you want to circle those and be thinking about those, number three, six, fifteen, and nineteen. All right, as we do every week, we're going to stand together and uh, have a reading of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray. So let us stand and read Deuteronomy six four through seven all together. Hear, O Israel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words given to us. We thank you for your truth presented to us in Scripture and then reverberating throughout history through our stories. I pray now that your Holy Spirit uh, would be here tonight, soften our hearts, and let us hear from you. Uh, pray for Ethan as he leads us. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, Ethan, we'll hear you gladly.
welcome, and thank you all for being here. I wanted to show that. That's actually a couple years old. It's called a director's reel. Um, but I wanted to show that. I thought it'd be fun because 95% of that work is from Shades. I want to thank you all for being here tonight. Um, my disclaimer right up front is that while this is stuff that I'm really passionate about, and these are kind of thoughts and ruminations based on my convictions, please take everything with a giant heaping serving granule of salt because um, I'm still, I've studied this for a long time. Um, and in all that studious intent, I, I've become uh, sure of very few things and confident of even less. So um, please kind of hear everything with that in mind tonight. Has this ever happened to you, just as a scenario, that you get home and you want to watch a movie? So you sit down on the couch and you turn to your sibling or significant other and you say, what do you want to watch? And they say, I don't know. What do you want to watch? You say, I don't know. So you begin flipping through the seemingly endless catacombs of something like Netflix um, and you don't know exactly what you're in the mood for. You hope that maybe um, when you see it, it'll just jump off the screen at you and it'll just feel right. And then an hour and a half passes, and you have yet to watch anything. Well, what I think is happening there is that we know on some level or another that movies have the power to make us feel or to think about things. And so on a subconscious level, we're going through all of these options, and we're saying, how do I want to feel tonight? How do I, cho- uh, do I want to choose to feel tonight, and what do I want to think about? Um, you know, in Matthew 13, we did this Kingdom series last year. We'll talk about it more later. But Jesus uh, is kind of trying to illustrate to people what the kingdom of heaven is like, and he's using parables in order to do it. Matthew thirteen ten says this, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Basically, why story? What are you doing here? It seems appropriate to open a talk about stories with a story, so kind of imagine this with me. One morning you wake up and you get dressed and you get ready for work. And as you're pulling out of the neighborhood on your way to work, you realize that the top button of your shirt is still missing, revealing an an awkward amount of chest hair that is going to be exposed throughout your work day. And I say still missing because you've asked your wife repeatedly to sew it back on, yet here you are. And later you're sitting in your tiny cubicle at work, um, and the moment you've been waiting for arrives, it's lunchtime. And so you take your carefully prepared bag of leftovers to the Um, small, visually repressive communal kitchen and are ready to pop it in the microwave when you open the door revealing that there's some half-inch thick of a surely foreign substance uh, that probably couldn't be identified on the periodic tables even if you tried, so you eat your sad, soggy lunch cold. And later still, you're stuck in the bumper-to-bumper post-workday traffic um, that's at a complete standstill on the interstate when you see an option to exit early. And after all, you've got to get groceries if the family hopes to eat tonight. So you turn your blinker on, you start to get off the interstate when a giant, completely carbon, unneutral truck cuts you off, nearly swiping the front of your car, assaulting you not just with the physicality of the vehicle, but also the dumb, juvenile, and somewhat racist bumper stickers on the back of the windshield. And you lay on your horn in frustration, a frustration that's later compounded as you're walking down the grocery store aisles You're starting to get a headache from the weird flickering that's going on in the fluorescent ceiling. You stand in line behind a woman who has decided to pay with check. And she is a thousand years old and she's tried five times to write it. And you've been in line for 15 minutes and it's too late to get out because there's now people behind you. Later that night, the story goes on like this basically. Where as later that night you're fighting with the will of your four month old. Trying to convince them that sleep isn't going to kill them but your lack of sleep might actually kill you when all that's said and done at the very end of the day you come downstairs and you sit in your favorite chair and you just want one moment's peace and quiet and you take a deep breath and then the neighbor's car alarm goes off and it wakes the baby this to me i bet you thought that story was going to be about movies but it clearly is not this to me is adult life (laughs) And for everybody that hasn't experienced adult life, the mundanity of that event, um, it's kind of a a weird reality that we graduate into. Unrelated, I want to take a look at the very end of the 19th century in Paris, France, um, where there's a couple brothers named uh, Auguste and Louis Lumiere, who they're working for their father producing photographic plates in a factory. 
Well, they decide to um, mechanize the process, taking it from a completely manual one involving assembly lines, um, and mechanize the process for it to become almost completely automated, which saves their father's business from bankruptcy. Well, it was then in that moment in 1895 that this kind of cosmic light bulb went off between these two brothers, and the idea of combining these two technologies was born, mechanized photography. So they begin, begin developing this machine that can basically take a rapid succession of these photographic plates they're so experienced with, and then once those plates begin to be developed and are strung out on a roll and light is thrown through them and projected up on a surface, something completely new happens. Um, it's almost indistinguishable from magic. It's pictures that move. If pictures were worth a thousand words, then this was absolutely priceless. They called it the cinemagraph, which is, um, comes from a Greek word meaning writing and movement, which I find pretty poetic. In all fairness, at the same time, there was, um, there was a guy in, here in America, a little-known guy named Thomas Edison, and he was working on some stuff, and he developed a machine that was similar called the kinetograph, but it was um, kind of vastly inferior as it um, had lower image quality, and only one person could watch it at a time. Um, whereas the cinemagraph could be watched by a group of people. Like this, we could gather together and share in it all at once, and that's an important point of difference because at its conception... Cinema was meant to be shared. We're going to watch the Lumieres in 1895 made the very first movie for public exhibition ever. We're going to watch that now. That's the whole movie. They literally just walked outside their factory and started filming. And as unimpressive as this might seem today, this was an invention, a moment of invention that was on the level, it changed the world on the level of the atomic bomb or penicillin. At first, movies were just kind of one shot, sort of like this. They were little uh, daily snippets of life. They filmed whatever was in front of them, people getting off a boat or experiencing daily life, just kind of filming and recording history. Maybe little one-shot comedy gags like that. I thought Jacob might enjoy that one. But the problem was, it became pretty apparent quick that um, that got boring, that nobody was going to be willing to pay for something that they could just walk outside their house and see at any point in the day. Uh, August Lumiere, one of the fathers of this thing, even said that uh, cinema was an invention without a future. Until 1903, when a former employee of Thomas Edison's named Edwin S. Porter discovered what is still to this day the most important point of difference between film, and every other art form out there, and that's editing. He realized that if you take two potentially completely different pieces of film and you glue or tape them together, and then you run that through the projector as if they're one piece, well, now it's something different altogether. You're not simply recording history as it happened. You were saying something. You were comparing and contrasting narrative ideas. Um, you could essentially be in two places at once, the audience could experience two times at once, or three, or 12 in the case of the Lord of the Rings movies. And not only that, depending on how long the cut lasted and the timing and the exact technical type, you could elicit a different emotional response in the audience, us. This was the moment that film went from kind of exhibition to an art form, the beginning of storytelling on film, something that's been around since the dawn of man, but now it had come to, to this new art form. Uh, Edwin Porter made his first movie where he was kind of employing this new idea of editing in 1903, and it's called The Life of an American Fireman. Let's roll that. Now, what's happening here is you see this woman, and she's trapped in this fire. And what he does is amazing. He cuts away to a completely different location, and we see firemen coming to her rescue. But what Porter realized was that um, in the audience, we begin to root for them to succeed, for them to drive a little faster, for her to hold on just a little bit longer. And this is amazing. Why? Because this isn't really happening. We're caring about something that is not real. She's not in any real danger. So why is it that over a hundred years later, we can sit in this room and care about some woman who our logical brains tell us um, she's lying to us, uh, and that the people that are putting on this charade died a long time ago. 
Well, that caring, that idea of forced empathy is what movies do best. And that's what we're going to focus on primarily tonight. Um, and the, that year in 1903, by the way, um, the Wright brothers also conquered uh, flight, which I find kind of poetic that those two sets of brothers did something so significant at that time. In the brisk century plus 14 years that have passed since, the basic idea of cinema has not changed. It's gone through all kinds of um, iterations and evolutions with the invention of sound. That was a big deal. And um, things like computer-generated images. But the basic idea is kind of still the same. And here in 2017, where we find ourselves is that uh, film and this art form in general have an incredibly powerful and prolific impact on our culture and influence over our society. The film and television industries are a $230 billion a year industry. That's our money that goes to that industry. Um, And not only that, one thing that I find kind of most impressive about its impact is that it's something that we all do. Um, Outside of maybe human bodily biological functions, there's very few things that we can say that about, that we all do them. And if you, it'd be very difficult to find anybody of kind of median adult age who has never seen a movie or watched a show. Whereas it might be a little more easy to find somebody who has never played golf, which I played golf the first time last week, and I was awful. Um, but I think this is important. I'll stop laboring the point, but film has an incredibly uh, powerful impact over society, and that's why we're looking at it at lenses. Even, you know, what we're doing now the word lenses, that as a concept makes sense to us partly because of film. You see this kind of image that we've chosen to illustrate what lenses do, but um, on some level we kind of all understand that a camera is this mechanical box, and the object that it's filming, say, is there. Um, And as you put a different lens or change the lens that's on the camera, it changes how we perceive the object. The object itself does not change. So what we're looking at tonight is how the gospel, if it's the lens through which we view life, how the gospel changes the object of film. Um, It's worth stating, after I drink some water, it's worth stating that everybody is the authority on what they like. And you don't have to apologize for what it is that you like. If rom-coms are your thing, looking at you, Reggie, then great. If westerns are your jam, that's fantastic. If uh, the Japanese master of animation, Hayao Miyazaki, is what you love, then love it well. Um, What I hope, if anything, will come from tonight, one thing I would hope that would be is um, that we begin to ask ourselves why we love what we love to watch and maybe be willing to consider why somebody else likes what they like. Um, Movies kind of serve a different practical uh, function for each and every one of us, and it's different from person to person. Movies can be medicine. Uh, If my wife Rachel is having a bad day or she is sick, um, I can pretty much count on the movie You've Got Mail coming on at some point in our house. She's seen it 300 times. There's no surprises left to be found within that movie. Um, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are always going to end up together regardless of that movie. Spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, I think the statute of limitations is out on that one. Um, But it doesn't matter. It's like hanging out with a group of friends that are a consistent and considerate comfort. It's like chicken noodle soup for your brain. Um, Education is another thing that movies can be. They can teach us about a place or an event or a thing um, that we could never hope to experience otherwise. Um, Yet another thing is escapism. And this is probably one of my favorite. Um, You can sit in a room like this in a darkened theater with a bunch of strangers and forget about your problems in your life and the problems in the world and escape Spend time in a galaxy far, far away. And these categories are loose, and they're not mutually exclusive. Some movies can be all, and other movies can just be in one of these. But what I want to talk primarily about tonight is movies as art. Um, And art, the A word. This is where we all gloss over, and Ethan lost the lenses crowd. Um, But stick with me, because... uh, we're going to delve into a little bit of what art is. And it's a difficult thing because art's one of those things that doesn't have one particular definition. I can say something that's art or artistic to Emily, and we can nod together like we both know what we're talking about, even though we might have two totally different ideas of what that is. Um, what art does have, however, is characteristics. 
quality is one of those characteristics. In every art form, whether it's writing or film uh, or painting, um, there's an aspect of craft to that art form. There's an aspect of form. And how well or skillfully executed that craft is is dependent and measurable as to its quality. Uh, another thing is expression. That's a characteristic of art. What is being said by the artist? What, uh, what truth have they observed? And what are they telling me? What are they making attractive to me with conviction and with emotion? And another is what I think is most the, the most important characteristic of art, which is provocation. This is the asking of a question. This is the thing that reaches through the painting or through our favorite song and touches us somehow. It makes us think. It causes us to ask questions about ourselves and the world around us. Um, it's unfortunate, you know, living in Birmingham, that art and the people that make it tend to come from only a couple places to the point where we feel like artists uh, only belong in maybe one of the two coasts of our country to some extent. Um, and that's how we get phrases like artsy-fartsy or you creative types, which if you want to endear me to you, just say you creative types. I will love you forever. I'm just kidding. Don't do that, please. It hurts my feelings. Um, the reason I get that, because art can often feel far from the practicalities of our daily lives, but the reason I think that's so unfortunate is because um, as image bearers of a creative God, we were created to be, in part, creative. If you look at the very first five words of all of Scripture, it says, in the beginning, God created. That is like a proven it's proven right then and there that creativity is a characteristic of our God. If you look at Genesis 2, skip down a little bit to 19 and 20, it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. So, Though we cannot truly create in the same way that God creates, God originates, he's given us dominion and creativity within his creation. He gave us that as a part of his character, something that he's put in all of us as part of humanity in order that we may reflect his glory with it. Um, another thing I don't really love is when I hear people say, I'm not creative. Um, and one reason I don't like that is that usually it just seems as an excuse to not do something like, you do it, I'm not all that creative, you just take care of it. Um, and this is a problem because if we believe that to be true, if we, were, we believe that we're made in God's image, why is it that the church isn't known for its, la for, for its celebration and engagement in the arts? Not only that, but we're often kind of synonymous with our opposition to it, which for good reason in many cases, but my point is this, Creativity made by people who are created in God's image and know it is what our culture needs. The church needs artists. We need to raise artists up. It's kind of on us to do that. Um, in this book uh, that Tim Keller actually contributed to, he kind of calls this idea out a little bit. The, the section that he wrote in this book is called Why the Church Needs Artists, fittingly enough. Um, and he talks about the most preeminent and famous of American theologians, Jonathan Edwards. Um, and in his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, we've all heard about this. Um, Keller makes a great comparison. We're going to throw um, this section of Edwards' sermon up on screen. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all the righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have, a, would have to stop a falling rock. It's incredibly vivid. Now what Edwards could have said was, your works ain't going to save you. Which is exactly how he talked, by the way. Few people know that about him. That was his accent. Um, but instead, he chose not to simply relay that factual information. He chose um, to create a world in which that message becomes not just known, but it becomes understood. 
viscerally somehow. That elevated state of emotional and intellectual awareness, that's what art does. And God continually reveals himself to us through it. Um, Art can do that with experiences that we've never had and people we've never met and thoughts that might not occur to us on our own. Story uses our imagination, which is said to be the back door of our soul when the front door of logic and reason and sin often is closed. It's a reaction to what we observe to be true in creation. And great art contradicts the logical, kind of reasonable mind, especially in the non-Christian, and elevates to praise um, the, the soul of the Christian. Film does that with narratives. Um, it's amazing to me when I watch movies made by non-Christians, um, and even those who are anti-Christian, and in their exploration of what they call the human condition, they stumble upon some common truths, some common grace-type truths that we find evident in Scripture also. Um, There's a, a great theological author, Stuart Barton Babbage, um, many of you might have read, where he kind of, in one of his books, he puts together a common list of narrative themes. And we're going to put that on the screen, but I don't want to tell you if it's from uh, movies or if this list comes from Scripture. We're just going to read them. The inveteracy of evil, the impotence of the human will, the horror of alienation, the indelibility of guilt, the gift of pardon, the longing for immortality, the joy of grace, and the mystery of love. So where do we think these came from? Well, it's a trick question. (laughs) The the actual answer is literature. Uh, But for our purposes, the answer is both, or it could be all three. We can all think of examples in movies we've perhaps seen that could fit within these categories, and scriptural truths and stories that we have read and experienced even that could also fit within these categories. Filmmakers for the last 100 years have been exploring that human condition idea, what we know to be our sin condition. And what I'd like to posit to you guys is that God can get the glory from things not strictly made in his name. Psalm 7610 says that basically that even the wrath of man can be made to praise God. All of these narratives point to the fact that human beings have a longing that can only be filled by restored relationship with our Father. Um... At the, risk, at the risk of kind of delving into abstraction here, as we talk about movies, uh, we, we all know that movies, not all movies are art. Not all movies are created equal. So an important like kind of question, a couple questions, to be able to discern what is, say, high art and what is maybe motel art is to ask yourself this. Am I being asked how how to think? Am I being told, rather, how to think? Or am I being asked what I think? Am I being told how to think would be maybe the motel art side of things? And am I being asked what I think would be what I consider high art or art in general? Um, This is kind of my number one problem with so-called Christian movies, is that these church movies have a bad habit of trying to do the work that God has entrusted with pastors. Um, Movies cannot preach. Art cannot preach. That's not its function. Preachers preach. And when art or movies try, they quickly kind of devolve into propaganda. And then the message that they were trying to say, the thing that they were trying to communicate, and the audience that most needs to hear it never will because no non-believer in their right mind is going to pay a $17 movie ticket to sit down and be force-fed some glossy propaganda dressed up in a movie costume. And before I get emailed <laughs> on <laughs> this, uh, I'm sure there are some good Christian movies, good church movies out there. Um, to be fair, I gave up trying them after the waves of artistic depression that followed watching. Um, and, I, and I do believe that, we'll get to this later, but I do believe that this medium is so incredibly powerful for communicating the gospel. Um, and I hope to be one that makes great Christian art uh, one day. Um, but if you have recommendations, please find me afterwards. I'm going to get emails. Uh, along those lines, though, to, to be fair and to be balanced, it's important to fight elitism. Yes, we can kind of define the line and talk about what is high art and what is low art, um, but it's I don't like the idea. I think it's something to avoid the idea that you can only engage in one or the other. 
um, exclusively. Uh, Think with me about this. We all have friends that like get really into something like coffee. And as you learn more about coffee, you quickly learn there's some really good coffee in the world. And when you, when you learn that and you begin buying your coffee from halfway around the world, you can't just put it in any cheap grinder. And the flavor becomes so important to preserve and to protect that you begin measuring out every ounce and you dial your water temperature in within half a degree. And this can, all, this can be well and good and this can be God-honoring. But if you're not careful, soon you won't be able to smell lesser coffees without getting sick or turned off. Um, And then the idea of fellowship that you were attracted to, fellowship of a a cup of coffee that kind of made you fall in love with it in the first place is going to be lost to you. Um, This is elitism, and it's something to be avoided in the church because we as Christians cannot prize any one form more than the God that it points to. Does that make sense? The gospel has given us a framework for the entire story of human history. It's a master narrative, one story that all others point to in some capacity or another. Um, That there was a perfect creation, a promise, spoiled by sin. A sacrifice had to be made to restore relationship, and an eventual um, consummation will come. So what do we, knowing that as Christians, what do we do going into movies, and how do we take movies with us into, say, worship? Well, historically, we haven't done a great job of the latter. Really, with any art form outside of um, music. And musical art is perfect for worship because we can do it no matter the size of the room or the group of people. We can lift and elevate our voices in praise to God. And we see throughout Scripture that God knows that, obviously, and instructs his people to specifically use music to worship him. Um, We haven't quite figured out how to engage in, say, painting as a group of 2,500 people on a Sunday morning at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. The logistics of that would kind of be daunting, um, and we haven't ruled it out. Uh, There's still some things to try there, I think. But uh, this idea, this question, is where what we do called Shades Stories came from. Um, The idea of how can we engage in narrative, uh, film, and literature in order to, you know, observe what we know is true, the the good work that Christ has done and is doing, Um, and use that to help elevate people to praise and worship. Um, So a year ago, we started kind of looking for stories um, of of that exactly, the good news, the good work that Christ has done to redeem his people in the lives of people that sit on the same pews with us every single week. And what we found was amazing, that the same stories of betrayal and addiction and loss and pain and hurt and hope and forgiveness, and love, and redemption, those stories, like, 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 that have been written since Beowulf to, like, the movie Frozen, all those stories are happening in Vestavia Hills, and Homewood, and Hoover on a daily basis. So I'm really excited to see what God continues to do with that. The other kind of thing that we've tried is some, we've kind of taken a stab at some more traditional narrative uh, short films. Our biggest project was a movie that I wrote and directed this past Christmas um, as part of a Christmas thing. And I hope we get to explore more of that. That's what I'm most passionate about. But as I was putting together this talk, um, trying to think of how the church uses art, I kept thinking about um, when I interviewed for this job here. It was 2012. I was still in college, and I was called up for a meeting with Danny. And it was after hours, and I thought that it was just going to be he and I, and he walked me back to his office. There's like three layers to the inner sanctum of his office. And in there, there's this round table and he opens the door to reveal that it's not me and him. It's me, him, and all of executive staff. And they turn and they all look at me in unison. And I think the lights kind of got dim and maybe there was a fog machine or something. The air felt really thick. And, uh, and it was like being at a meeting of like mafioso family heads that if I said one wrong thing, I was not going to get the job and I was probably going to lose my life. But, so through a like, kind of nervous, shaky voice, I tried to explain why I thought um, using film, using these art forms, could be used in worship, could be useful for the church. And that if anybody, um, the most creative people in the world, I thought, should be Christians. And if anybody's got the playbook for how to use story to bring people closer to Christ, then it's Christians. 
Um, you know, last year, Danny went through that series in the kingdom. It was a long series, and part of it was focusing on the parables that Jesus is um, trying to illustrate for people what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he's telling all these stories, and a couple of revelations that came out of that were really important for me. One, Jesus is the greatest storyteller to ever live. Like, his stories are beautifully and perfectly constructed, and any writer would be envious, I think. Um, And two, why he's using story in the first place. We talked um, a little bit ago about why, uh, how imagination is the back door to the soul when the front door of, let's call it sin, is closed. Um, Well, I think Jesus obviously knew that and was using story to kind of get me out of my own selfish kingdom, skull-sized kingdom of self-attention you know, for us to be here, we kind of all understand that as fallen people, we, we tend to be selfish and we tend to create our own little kingdom and we seek to uh, grow and satisfy with whatever we can grab our sinful appetites in order to uh, grow that kingdom. Well, I think Christ kind of uses story to circumnavigate, to um, bypass our kingdom of selves, to put us in that elevated place to make us better understand his kingdom. Christ is the, the best storyteller in history because he continually calls his people to himself using it. Um, which brings us to empathy. Empathy, I think, um, you know, Curlin, I don't know how many of you guys were here last week. Curlin talked about how uh, stories cause us to put flesh and blood on abstract ideas, uh, things that might not make sense otherwise. And it's my belief that developing this um, mode or this discipline rather of empathic thought is key in spreading the gospel. Now I want to show an example of what I mean because uh, we've had way too much of me talking and we need to watch a clip again. Um, but I want to make sure we understand that this is kind of a, this example happens to be in the political and social zeitgeist right now. And that's not at all what this is about. Um, I want to show it as simply an example. I don't care necessarily where we fall politically on this issue, but I want to show it as an example of what art can provoke us, how art can provoke us to be empathic. Um, This is abstract. This is math. This is two-dimensional, black and white uh, math, basically. And what we're going to show now, many of you might have seen, it's from um, a shorter version of this, came in the Super Bowl, Um, and it's about the same thing, but functions in a completely different way. David, let's roll that.
Agua, por favor. Um, it's amazing to me that, and kind of hilarious a little bit that that is a uh, commercial for wood at the end of the day. Um, so again, taking politics out of it, that's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. It's kind of a little bit on the nose and perhaps a little cheesy even. But what it does do is it forces the audience, it provokes the audience to consider people and not math. It points out subtlety and nuance and culture and emotion that a simple headline cannot do. Um, this is work. For me, this is part of the adult life we were talking about earlier. Um, that doing the work of developing empathy in opposition of my selfishness is sort of required. So what I want to challenge all of us today as we start to close um, is have us challenge ourselves to see movies and participate in art that we normally might not. Because as Christians, I don't know if it's necessarily all right to only read the publications or the blogs or see the movies or listen to the music that we um, know 100% for certain that we will agree with beforehand um, in the same way that it would be antithetical to the Great Commission to only spend time with people that we know we will 100% agree with beforehand. That this, of course, requires careful um, and disciplined discernment. Um, that we need to take the Holy Spirit's gift of that discernment into views and people that are unlike ourselves to look for and understand what people are hoping for, what people are believing in, um, and what people are seeking to understand when they don't know Christ. This helps us speak a common language. It helps us to build relationship. Um, and what, what it does... Doing this through movies, what it does is it points to, sure, the world's need for grace more deeply, but it also, what I've found, is it continually points to my need um, for continual grace more deeply. Um, 
you know, this isn't easy. But too often, I feel like as the church, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater a little bit that uh, to the point where in the mid-90s, we were literally burning, you know, non-Christian music. Um, that you need to be wise and you can't, uh, you know, this is not a talk I hope you weren't expecting it to be of kind of what exactly you should watch and what you shouldn't watch. For That's, for lack of a better phrase, kind of a personal question that you need to prayerfully consider and be held accountable to and basically just to be wise about. But we all watch movies, whether we're um, executives or uh, mechanics or accountants or artists, And God, it is possible that God is revealing himself to us through them and that he's giving us the opportunity to reflect his glory in them. Um, But this work of empathy and discernment, it requires practice. And that's in large part what I found that movies and art have done in my own life. Um, Adult life, as we were talking about, feels that it can be kind of holistically unfair at times and difficult But perhaps if we do this work and through the power of the Holy Spirit and escaping whenever possible that kind of tiny skull-sized kingdom of self we were talking about, um, we might be able to put on a different lens that we might actually practically be able to see all of life through the lens of the gospel. Um, Movies can perhaps help us do that. That Maybe when um, we realize that the top button of our shirt is missing, we can for a second, be willing to consider that maybe our wife is just as overworked and overly tired and worrying about the big picture of our family when little things like buttons get dropped. And uh, when we get cut off in traffic, perhaps it's not because that truck has a vendetta against our day being easy, but maybe we'll be willing to consider perhaps he, his child swallowed too many allergy pills and they're rushing him to the ER. And while it's unlikely, it's not altogether impossible that they're having a much worse day than we are. Um, that the, maybe the lady at the grocery store, uh, she's recently had her identity stolen, and she's just now recovering from the debts that were racked up in her name. Um, and through a crippling kind of um, fear of it happening again, she can only pay with checks, even though it's really painful for her arthritis to write them. Um, this work, you know, it's, I'm not good at it. I by no means am, uh, have perfected this as much as I kind of believe these things. Um, but in movies, we learn that stories, that we learn to see things as stories. Uh, we learn that people, characters, have a backstory. Um, we perhaps could learn that the world around us is not just set dressing with filled with extras that are in benefit and support of our story, but perhaps through provoking us towards empathy, um, movies can help us actually begin to see the world through Jesus's lens. Um, And that is something that he kind of can't help but get the glory from. So uh, I want to thank you guys for listening to me ramble on for the last 50 minutes. And I think, I don't know what we're about to do now. Let's give Ethan a hand for his contributions. Thank you. Uh, we have plenty of time for some Q&A, and I imagine I've got a million questions, but I also work with Ethan and can use all of my work day to ask my questions. But you tonight, I'm sure will have some questions. I'd love to hear them. Be gentle with me. Yes, up front, Chris. What are some of your favorite movies? I stole the words out of my mouth. Great question. Um, I have a really annoying answer for that. It's one of those, I don't have a favorite movie. I have favorite filmmakers, or I can think of movies that are uh, important to times in my life um, where that, that kind of changed how I thought about movies or marked a specific place where I was spiritually or emotionally. Um, so right now, I have favorite directors, and the one that's sticking with me probably the longest is a director named Paul Thomas Anderson. I love his movies. Great question. Other questions? Yes, Ray. Thank you. Uh, fortunately, he took my question off. <laughs> he took the question. So um, I was wondering if you could share with us uh, what do you feel constrains you? Like, uh, you know, we all have internal and external constraints, right? I mean, there are things probably you would like to do, but you won't do. Uh, and it could be because internally... Now, whether it's your conscience or your conviction or 
um, or, or whether, you know, it's the environment uh, or what people would think, you know, like uh, if you use this symbol or this idea. Um, I would love if you could share with us some of your conflicts, like, you know, things you, you don't have to if you don't, mm -hmm. you know, don't go or you don't want to go. But like, <laughs> you know, things that, that, that perhaps you would like to break free. You know, and that you feel God is calling you to break free, but you, you're not ready to break free in, in this business that you do. That's, what mm. That's a great question, Ray. Thank you for that. Um, I think, and in terms of speaking to constraints, uh, working, doing the work that we do, which is ministry and trying to combine it with art, especially, um, the, the struggle, the conflict, and the friction often comes from the thing we were talking about of... Um, being kind of seduced to wanting that art to preach, to be maybe too on the nose, um, in sacrifice of it being perhaps more, um, more provocation, that we sometimes uh, over, make things overly clear or too overtly clear, um, that it lose some of its artistic integrity to an extent. Um, and in terms of uh, things that I want to break free from a little bit, just speaking personally, um, you, that, that thing we were talking about earlier of sitting and scrolling through Netflix and you don't really know what you want to watch or what you want to feel like. Um, I, what we default to, we rarely consciously go, I want to feel sad. I want to feel really sad tonight. So I'm going to watch a really sad movie. Sometimes you need a good cry, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, and when in the church we're looking at stuff to make uh, and anything that might cause us to consider our sin or... or, or uh, maybe be dark um, is often we have to kind of pull that back because we're realizing that um, it's a Sunday morning and people want to, you know, you don't want to do something that is going to prohibit people from being elevated to praise. Um, so we often have to shy away from some of the darkness, from some of the, um, yeah, from some of the more probing dark questions uh, in order to free us up to, you know, we don't want to ruin anybody's worship experience or anything like that, which is completely understandable, but it is the thing that we probably kind of run up against the most. We don't want to go too sad or too dark or too whatever. Uh, Ethan, I have a question for mm -hmm. you, but first I want to poll the audience. Uh, how many of you have seen one of Ethan's films in church before? Yes? Raise, keep your hand up if you have cried in one of Ethan's films in church before. Yes. Oh, great. That's good. Uh, Ethan, you've it's done uh, films, short stories, uh, narratives, testimonies, uh, um, in our worship services before, can you name one or two that you thought, like, that's what I wanted it to be, and I feel like that went really well in terms of, like, we could all say once of stories of yours that we've heard or that, we, that elevated us in worship, but what would you say, like, hey, I think we got this one right with what we were trying to do? Um, I'm a weird case, and my family's probably going to know what I'm talking about here. Uh, I don't love from the moment that I hit export. I don't love anything that I've never made for pretty much my entire life. Um, but excluding maybe that fact, some of the things that I think have been most successful, um, I don't know, when I think back on them, maybe like this Christmas movie we did, we tried some things more ambitious, um, that were more ambitious and uh, different than we had ever done them before. But you were hampered by poor acting, so that's yeah. That was something to really overcome, but I think we almost got there. Um, uh, but in, in, in looking towards things like that, I do think about, uh, in all honesty, I'm proud of not maybe the whole, or I don't really get to hear from you guys a lot as to what it meant to people. We're kind of locked off in dark rooms. But when I think back on things, I'm proud of people's work, and I'm, I'm proud of Tate and his, how he kind of rose as a producer to make that happen, and proud of your performance, and proud of the people that came apart. So when I think about those things, I think about, um, the experience, the memories that we had making them. Uh, I'm going to ask the same question because you dodged that one. Um, the, in your ideal world, uh, how would film be used in a weekly or regular worship service? And, and none of your bosses are here in the room tonight. <laughs> and uh, Tom is like barely your boss, but not even really. So, Tom will tell me, though. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I think perhaps I would like to see more of that provocation, that asking a question while maybe not answering it. Um, again, because 
we kind of feel constrained. We kind of feel the pressure to go ahead and answer it and tie the bow on it within the piece of art, whereas I would kind of like to move more towards um, just asking the question, just setting the stage um, and letting the Holy Spirit and letting Danny and what God's called him to do uh, to do the rest. Other questions? Yeah. Adam, we're going to get to all of these, even if we have to forego small groups, just because I I'm love sorry, watching that went Ethan long, be a public was, speaker. So how, how difficult is it to make a film that works on a lot of levels across a broad spectrum of age ranges and fluencies? Like, for example, um, we can't all make the Lego movie, but that's what you're aiming for, right? Exactly. No, we have a stop motion thing we've been working on for five years here. It's going to be amazing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, that's a great question. We, we, one of our values is every generation together, um, and it's something to be valued. It's amazing. Um, but it's also tough because if you want to make something that speaks very clearly to a generation, um, it's often lost to the rest, the, 70%, the other 70% of the people in that room. Um, and so trying to, I worry maybe sometimes of trying to make something that does, we're like, this definitely ticks the, cro- ticks the boxes for all these generations, um, that sometimes we might be watering down what could be a more, uh, specific impact if we were able to, if it was just, you know, 70 year olds in the room or just 12 year olds in the room, we could probably be a little bit more, um, daring maybe. Hi, Ethan. Great Thanks, job. Um, so I'm, I'm not an artist uh, in any form. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, like, what's sort of the entry point for non-artists in this realm? You know, like, I consume movies in the sense that I watch them and I try to appreciate them. Um, it seems like other art forms might be a little bit easier to think about, you know, um, so for the non-artist, uh, besides just like watching them and trying to see where the story parallels the story of the gospel, kind of what would you what would you suggest? How could you what would you recommend as sort of to a non-artist how to like take this information and then go? Yeah, does that make sense? No, totally. Okay. Um, uh, film is one of those kind of things where, unlike any other art form, it is the amalgamation of all other art forms. There's photography, there's performance, there's acting, um, there's composition, there's color, there's you know painting, theater. All these things um, are wrapped up. The only thing exclusive to film actually is editing. Um, so because of that, because it is all those things, it is actually very difficult. It takes time to kind of start to think about critically all those different aspects because there is so much craft packed into what takes, you know, seconds to happen on screen. Um, So what I would say is avoid thinking about it in that capacity, Uh, but maybe if you're not a filmmaker per se, but maybe think more in terms of um, asking yourself, what am I being told here? What is um, being said by the artist what is being made attractive to me and why is that attracting me? Um, we know that film has this kind of impact whether we like it or not. If it disgusts us, if it um, you know, makes us want to be a part of it or whatever. And it's just maybe taking those things, identifying it in yourself and kind of being uh, introspective enough to go, why am I into this or not into this? You know? I don't know if that answers that at all, but good question. Hey, Ethan, uh, appreciate what you do. I get to create things a little bit at work myself, but I'm like, you know, like B, C team compared to what you guys put out. But um, I'm just curious, just out of uh, my own curiosity, could you explain to us a little bit of just the process uh, that goes into, you know, any type of, whether shade stories or a long-form film? Because, I mean, it, it, anything from planning to, you know, w- when you hit import to export, Kind of walk us through that, give us an idea of like just the time and just the precious moments that go into that. And because we get to consume that as an end user and as a creator, you know, no one sees you in that dark room spending hours of, of your life. Um, right. But just kind of walk us through that. No, yeah, that's a question I appreciate because it is like you'll put months into something and then it's over in like a 90 seconds. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, that was great. Made a lot of memories. Um, the process for us, we've kind of fine-tuned it a little bit um, here lately in some of our bigger projects. But I'll give it an, as an example. We're about to launch this thing for Easter, and we're going to try to build this really cool, hopefully, hopefully cool idea uh, leading up towards Easter. 
And so what will happen is me and Tate and David and Jordan, our creative team, will meet together. We'll throw around these ideas. We'll take that into our worship planning meeting where we talk about Sundays. We'll throw around them in there. They'll say no to things. They'll say we want to hear more about that in, in certain capacities. And then we'll go and we'll kind of, that, that kind of uh, exploration phase is one of my favorite parts of it. And then from there, you get something kind of approved, and it's about, it's, just full speed ahead to execution. So we split up and kind of divide and conquer. And right now, David is working on the visual and graphic look for all the posters and publications, things that will go out to you guys. Tate is working, calling people constantly because we have like six locations we need to shoot in for this thing. And um, way more than six, don't we? We have like 20. Um, so he's calling all those people, and that's a bunch of schedules that have to be wrangled. So there's a lot of like just clerical like business that's got to be done before we can actually be truly creative. And then the process of shooting that stuff is just also pure like survival. Like how can we get through this and not um, forget something that is going to be crucial to telling this story. Um, And then what is my favorite part is the editing because, because editing is truly unique to film and because it's the most kind of powerful part I I feel of the filmmaking process. um, I love going away and kind of um, being able to, uh, reduce almost in cooking as you you would reduce a sauce or something until it is like right where it needs to be and then we show that and it gets approved and it gets re- you know revised and it goes through so many kind of different approval processes and iterations and recuts and we show it to different people we get notes on it and all this kind of different stuff um, so it'll be like you know two three months on some of these bigger projects and then uh, we'll get really nervous that it won't play or that something will freeze on the computer right as we're trying to show it to you guys um, but I hope that makes sense. It's, it's, yeah, it takes a lot of people too. I want to point that out. It's not just me at all. So for almost millennia, the church was, um, the go-to and almost the perfecter of every art. You think of architecture, woodworking, ceramics, uh, painting, everything was derivative out of the church and religious institutions. And then you hit probably the last, what, 150, 200 years, and not only did it just drop off, it's almost non-existent. Um, is there, in your study of history and stuff, is there something that you can point to that's the catalyst to that? And then part two of that question is moving forward. Is there a way to recapture that um, just under the current culture? Um that is a really intelligent question that I'm going to answer in a very unintelligent way. Um, somebody like Curlin would be probably more suited to answer something like this. I think from my limited knowledge and what I've seen is that you had that kind of exactly what you're describing, that cathedrals were these, you know, built as monuments to God's glory and all this kind of stuff, painting, uh, poetry, every living art form at the time. And then the kind of age of enlightenment happened and the idea of, believing, having faith, believing in something that could not be proven um, the way that Newton proved that gravity existed um, became far less um, okay in culture. And I think it's, it wasn't an, ex- it wasn't a, you know, on off switch, but from that point on, it's been more and more difficult for whatever reason to communicate um, this elevated, visceral, emotional experience to people who, um, or resistant to being open to not fully knowing the answers, you know? Uh, and that's what I see in our culture pervasively today is that if it can't be proven um, or at least talked about in complete rationality, um, then it's often dismissed. And art is the opposite of that. Art is uh, all feeling, you know? And, and there are certain um, proofs and things within that, but you know what I mean? It's, it's all part of kind of the experience of it. Um, and so in terms of how we can capture that back, boy, if I knew we'd be doing it right now, um, I think it's just to keep trying. And something we didn't talk about was like, you can watch movies or experience any art form and see, um, that conviction, that expression thing that we talked about. You can look at something and go, they meant it. And you can look at something and go, they phoned it in, or this is just finger painting, or this is just whatever. Um, and I think maybe my gut says that how we get back to that is persistently and consistently um, continue to make things with conviction, that we know there's truth. We know that the tomb is is still empty. So we can go into these art forms 
um, and express that with all of the kind of conviction that we rest our salvation on? Again, great question, horrible answer. I apologize. Any other questions? Uh, my final question is: Danny Wood, the only person you know that likes movies more than you? Yes. How often of your time talking with him is talking about movies? Ninety-eight um, <laughs> percent. Danny Wood sees more movies than I do, and he is the only person I think who does see more movies than I do that I know. I believe that. Uh, let's give Ethan a hand for his contribution. Thank you all. Uh, I'm going to call an audible. I'm going to ask you to do two things. One, uh, before you leave tonight, you're excused because you got up already. Uh, before, introduce yourself to someone in the room who you don't know. Go say hello to them and learn their name, and that may be the first step to learning their story. And then second, take these questions with you, and the next time you watch a film, ask these questions about that film. Uh, about that movie. Do it in a group if you can, but take these things and realize what is true in this film that points us back to the story of Jesus Christ. Um, We're going to close right now uh, with standing together and reading a short prayer. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Have a great night. We'll see you next week. Dr. Josh Reeves, a professor at Samford, is going to be here to talk to us about technology. So technology next week. We're excited to have you. Have a great night.